How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 162 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, today, X-Lapsed is half-vaxxed. I just uh, got my first dose of the vaccine this morning, and um, I was a little bit nervous about it because uh, I heard some folks say that uh, it really hurt, you know? I had some bad pains and uh, fevers and just uh, really showing symptoms here, and... uh, I'm happy to report that I have uh, no pain, uh, but I do I do have some lethargy. I'm very, very tired. Um, it all hit at once. Uh, I was fine for probably like an hour, and then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, the eyes grew heavy, the front of my head, and I, I have a fairly large head, I suppose, but the front of my head was especially heavy. And uh, yeah, I was very, very tired, and still am. And uh, unfortunately, it's uh, Excalibur Day. So I'm not sure there's going to be anything to uh, really excite me or get me worked up. So um, let's get into it. Today, we're taking a look at Excalibur Volume 4, number 18. Now, this had an April 2021 cover date. Story's called Mad Women. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Tull. Colors, Eric Arshanaga. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sapolsky, cover price $4. This one went on sale February 10 of 2021. Now, before we get into the issue itself, um, a few episodes back, I talked about, uh, I believe it was the first issue of X-Men after uh, wrapping the Festival of Swords here. It has the has Cyclops on the cover, and it also, I made note that there are like the eyes of Krakoa looking down on Cyclops. This is the other cover where the eyes of Krakoa are looking down. Um, the cover is, you know, our main team, Sans Betsy, because Betsy's missing, of course. Uh, then they're kind of shadowed or hovered over by members of the Quiet Council, and then they're kind of hovered over by the eyes of Krakoa. So, don't know if this is intentional or just a coinky dink. Um, I mean, then again, it's a current year cover, so how much stock can we put into it anyway? Uh, I'm just happy it's not. Uh, you know, Rogue just running at the camera with uh, speed lines around her. I, I suppose that's a, you know, thank thank whatever for whatever miracles here. But let's get into the book itself. We open in other world. Of course we do. We're at the Starlight Citadel in the throne room of her royal wyness, who uh, looks kind of like a royal wino at this point. There's several empty uh, glasses at her feet. And I tell you, I truly miss the days when literally years would go by between instances wherein Saturn I would even go through my mind, much less appear on panel. But here we are. Her fish-faced aide is there to deliver her tea, as well as a letter from the Krakoans. Now, she orders Real, or Rill, R-Y-L, the fish-faced woman, who's 
Name I hadn't bothered to commit to memory yet, as I was hopeful we were done with Otherworld by now, but, uh, alas, no. Uh, she orders Rill to fetch her quill pen so that she might compose a response. Now, the gimmick here is that the Krakoans are reaching out for some aid. Probably Betsy-related aid. Saturnine, who, uh, well, spells her own name incorrectly in her response, uh, writes them a letter basically blowing them off. She says that all inquiries from them should come via Captain Britain. But, you know, Betsy Britain's whereabouts and whatabouts are kind of why they're writing in the first place. So we got ourselves a, an otherworld standoff, I suppose. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Today's characters include Betsy Britton, Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Rachel Summers, Emma Frost, Captain Avalon, Maggie Braddock, and that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. We return to comics at the Braddock Lighthouse. Rogue is chatting up Rachel about this weird new lady of the water, Betsy, who appeared at the end of last issue. She's apparently been here for like two days now, just staring into the drink. Rogue wonders if this might mean it's not their Betsy. Or Ma Betsy, as Rogue puts it. And you know, I, I really don't remember these two being all that close. Like, uh, they were teammates, and teammates for a while, but I never really saw them as friends. Um, this story and this volume seems to be going out of its way to convince us otherwise. Uh, doesn't feel legit, though. Now, Rachel posits that from everything she's been able to glean, which isn't all that much, this is the real Betsy because she's of this dimension and she's aware of Krakoa. Well, if that's all it takes, I mean, can't argue with that. Uh, Betsy then telepathically tells Rachel to kindly stay out of her mind, which Rach has no option but to respect. Now, before cutting away, Rachel asks Rogue to give her a little skin-to-skin contact. Mine's out of the gutter. This is only so she could pass along a little bit of her telepathic powers, just in case Rogue might need them. But then, Saturnine appears... Oh, wait. No, that's Emma Frost. Uh, Sorry about that. Now, Emma's here because Cerebro had pinged that Betsy was back, and she's quite annoyed that Excalibur is keeping this fact from the Quiet Council. She then looks at Betsy and wonders just what in the hell is wrong with her. Rachel uses her vast TP powers to conclude that... Betsy's kind of bummed down. Uh, Emma tells the crew that the Quiet Council is considering closing the Otherworld Gate forever. And uh, I need to get on the Quiet Council so I can vote yay. Um, Rogue is not keen on that plan and suggests that Excalibur will head back to friggin' Otherworld to chat up Saturnine about helping out with the otherworldly mutant resurrection problem. I mean, let's go back in time here. Not, Not even too far back in time. Back when mutants could, you know, die... Uh, you know, the X-Men didn't spend the entirety of their existence from 1963 till 2019 trying to, quote, conquer death. They simply tried not to die, just like every other hero in the Marvel Universe, just like every other human in the Marvel Universe. Can't they just try to not die in other worlds? Oh, well, uh, you know, maybe the members of the Wolverine family were right when they suggested that mutants these days have grown soft. Now, Emma decides that she's going to give Rogue a few days to get this all sorted. We jump ahead to dinner time at the lighthouse, and the gang's all here. Richter, upon preparing what appears to be a bowl of baby poop, calls out to Betsy, offering her one last chance to get it while it's hot. Betsy declines to join them. Now, as our heroes sit down to sup, Valeria Winter Margaret Thatcher Braddock enters via a gateway. She spots Aunt Betsy and 
you know, kind of freaks out. This causes Betsy's eyes to squint all sorts of evil, and then she flees. Moments later, Maggie drags Betsy's beautiful blonde, bewildered British brother Brian into the uh, gate, and by the time they get here, Betsy's done bounced. Brian, like Emma before him, is kind of annoyed that Excalibur would keep this from him, to which he gets the whole, we ain't know if she really truly her, sugar, treatment. At some point, Megan, Gloriana, Braddock, Nee, Pusino, Elf Ears arrives, and our rogue invites them all to stay for dinner. We jump to later, and Brian's having himself a think in front of the fireplace. He's approached by Rogue. Brian comments that Rogue doesn't seem to believe that this Betsy is their Betsy, and Rogue confirms that. Brian agrees, as her behavior is quite unlike anything his sister has done before, even when she's angry or upset. Then again, I mean, if this is the real Betsy, she was kind of just shattered into a million little pieces, which, I don't know, might just change a person a little bit? No? Anyway, Rogue leaves Brian to his thinking, and he soon falls asleep. He's then tripped awake by Betsy, but he's in a trance, you see. Betsy escorts him through the Krakoan gateway back to Avalon, where he heads to his quarters. Betsy then tags Rogue, waking her up. And and tag as in, you know, tag, you're it, which is exactly what Betsy says. Rogue wakes, and then gets completely into costume before seeing Betsy head into a Krakoan gateway back to Krakoa. So uh, we got a a lot of sense sense of urgency here, right? Uh, Rogue assumes that this is like a game of tag, and Betsy is goading her into following. The members of Excalibur all get into their full costumes before meeting to decide how to handle the situation. So yes, urgency, thy name, is Excalibur. Rogue says she knows Betsy's on Krakoa, and so she's going to head there to try to track her down. Richter will come with her, but he has to make a stop first. I mean, urgency reigns supreme here, doesn't it? Jubilee then... Oh, come on. Jubilee is once again using Shogo's fussiness as an excuse to not do anything. Why is she even here? Come on. Gambit, the only member left, is sent to Avalon to chat up King Jamie the Weird, who Rogue refers to here as Monarch, which is, you know, awfully official. I don't think we've seen much use of that weirdo Jamie Braddock's mutant name during this era, have we? Maybe we have, I just don't recall. Uh, Rogue again insists that she and Betsy are BFFs, and then we're off to the races. We're going to start with Gambit's trip into Avalon. King Jamie the Weird is just there chilling on his throne, as he do. Uh, Gambit asks about Brian, to which we learn that he is sleeping in his room. And so Gambit asks if Betsy's with him, which is kind of gross. Jamie is shocked to learn that Betsy's back at all. And, like Emma and Brian before him, gets annoyed that Excalibur would keep this from him. So, is this like a running gag at this point, or just lazy writing? Uh, I mean, do we need to see variations on this same exact scene three times over the course of the past ten pages? Anyway, uh, Gambit gives the same response Rogue did the last two times. We don't know that she'd be the real demon of me monarch, you know, that kind of thing. Jamie then gets overly defensive, promising that he didn't create another new Betsy. You know, like he did during that weird London burning issue from right before Exit 10s. That one that resulted in the heretical Captain Britain Corps, if I'm remembering right. So yeah, he confirms that he didn't make another Betsy, but um, he did have one made. Oh, we all remember his request from Mr. Sinister's Black Market Clone Farm, yes? Now let's pop back over to Krakoa here. We got Rogue and Richter there in A's old magic lab in the... Grove of Possibilities. 
I don't know if this is a new name for this area of the island. Maybe it's old. I don't have my Krakoa map handy. Anywho, Richter starts thumbing through the tomes while suggesting that there isn't much difference between their mutant powers and magic, and how use of their powers in tandem, like how the five do their resurrection hoodoo, is a sure sign of how mutant covens might work. Rogue appears to be kind of incredulous, but doesn't really bust Richter's chops over it. It looks like uh, she's even going to give him the opportunity to try casting a spell. Uh, It's not like there's any urgency to this endeavor, right? How about we just stop and watch a Dazzler concert while we're at it, and then maybe during the concert, Dazzler can announce that Betsy's back, and that Excalibur kept it from them. So then we can go one by one through the citizenry of Krakoa while Rogue says, we ain't sure it's really hard, sugars. You know, we we can really, really stretch this out. Anyway, let's go back to Avalon. Jamie escorts Gambit down to the dungeon to show off his black market Betsy. Along the way, they pass a table with a sheet on it. Remy removes the sheet, which reveals Morgan Le Fay in bondage. Gambit is aghast by this revelation. To which Jamie's all, hey man, she's a security threat, so this is where she stays, and Gambit really doesn't put up much of a fuss. He then shows Gambit a big old sarcophagus, which creaks open, revealing... Huh. You know, Jamie Braddock kind of looks like Geraldo Rivera, doesn't he? You remember when Geraldo, you know, found something that he opened for people? And, uh, well, uh, you remember what he found inside there? It's the same thing that Jamie finds upon opening the sarcophagus. Bupkis. Nothing. Uh-oh. Let's jump back to Krakoa, and Richter is casting a spell to try to access Apocalypse's last will and testament. Um, What? Okay, you all knew I was eventually going to ask this, but, uh, did we miss an issue? Now, before Richter can do the thing, however, he's attacked by Betsy Britton. Betsy knocks Rogue down and mounts her. Mine's out of the gutter. Rogue asks who she is, which seems a rather odd question to ask, doesn't it? Uh, Betsy responds that she's one of Rogue's oldest friends, which is either sarcasm or just rubbing Rogue's nose in it. Now, before Betsy can run her blade through Rogue, she herself is attacked by... Oh, come on. Uh, Any guesses? Any at all? Does anybody care? Of course she's attacked by Quanon, because of course she's attacked by Quanon. This feud refuses to quit, and I am tired. We close out with an info page, and it's Apocalypse's Will... Yeah, wherein he leaves everything to his apprentice, Richter. Whoop-de-doo. That's where we end it. Next episode, we're heading back into some more King and Black tie-inning with sword number three. But it's still Excalibur Day, so let's do some Excaliburing. This is the kind of issue that actually defies note-taking, because uh, I've never seen The Shining, but I do know there's that whole all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy thing. There's typed out over and over and over again. When I try to write notes for this, it just comes out as, I hate this book, I hate this book, I hate this book. Which, you know, is, is extreme. You know, hate is, a, uh, is an extreme sort of emotion to have, especially towards something as silly as a comic book. But this just really isn't for me. Um... We're going on 20 issues here, and we're still dealing with Otherworld stuff. Um, I was still dealing with Psylocke versus Quanon after all these years of it, and I know we're going to get more of it in Hellions pretty soon. It's just like, is this... 
You know, I always talked when I when I would cover like Batman books, I would always talk about how everybody wanted to write that scene. You know, they wanted to write the scene where, you know, uh, Martha Wayne's pearls go all over the uh, all over Crime Alley. You know, everybody wants to be able to say they wrote that scene into a comic script or Spider-Man at the George Washington Bridge or whichever bridge they decide it was this time. They always want to write that scene. Is there, like, something in, like, X-Men writers where they want to write a Psylocke versus Quanon fight? Like, is that something that people have on their bucket list that we need to see? Because, first, aim higher. <laughs> and second, come on, how many more times can we do it? How many more times do we need to see it? It's too much. Um, let's talk about this Lady of the Water, Betsy, here, and whether or not she is the real deal here. We don't get a whole lot of information here. I guess we can assume that perhaps she is the black market Betsy that escaped from the sarcophagus in Otherworld. Um, but, I mean, how did she get out? I would think maybe maybe Brian was tricked into doing it, but, but he would have been tricked by a Betsy that was already at the lighthouse. So maybe we have multiple Betsys here. Maybe the first Betsy is the real Betsy. Who woke Brian up to go free the black market Betsy from the sarcophagus? I, I really, I really don't know. I'm just so over this. Uh, this has just been going on way too long, and there isn't, there isn't enough story for this. There really, really isn't. Um, I mean, not only is this, you know, overarching story drawn out. I mean, just this is very issue was here. We had the same conversation thrice with people annoyed that Excalibur were keeping Betsy a secret. Which begs the question, why in the hell were they keeping Betsy a secret? I mean, if it... Let, let's... I mean, there's two ways this can go, right? There's two ways this can go. We have this Lady of the Water Betsy who showed up just in the nick of time to get uh, Mariana Stern from knocking over the lighthouse because the owner of the home wasn't there or some crap. Um, so let's go. We got two different ways we can go. Either this is the real Betsy... In which case, yeah, tell the Quiet Council, tell Krakoa, tell the mutants, tell everybody. Or this isn't the real Betsy. In which case, tell the Quiet Council, tell Krakoa, tell everybody. There's absolutely no reason to keep this a secret. I, 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 I don't get it. I really, really don't. Let's go through our cast, because, I mean, there isn't a whole heck of a lot of story to discuss here. Uh, Richter suddenly wanting the last will and testament of Apocalypse... Did I miss something? Like, I mean, I know it's like almost a meme now or a trope. Every time we cover Excalibur, I have to ask, did we miss something? But did we? And I mean, even if we didn't, wouldn't there, shouldn't there be like a better time to attend to that? Like, can Richter do that on his own time? Rather, I mean, if this is so urgent that he needs Apocalypse's tomes and uh, the last will and testament... Why is he waiting until they have other things to do to mention that, hey, I gotta do this thing? I mean, at this point, I don't know how long ago X of Swords was, but I gotta assume it's at least a few days. And if Richter was really this interested in, in getting Apocalypse's secrets, he would have by now. I don't know, this is just so, like, inorganic. Inauthentic, even. It's rough. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Jubilee. Why the hell is she here? I, I, I we're... If you're following along with the Sunday special series, we're taking a look at uh, Generation X Volume 2 right now, you know? And it feels like in every single scene, when Jubilee's asked to do something, she's like, oh, I can't, Shogo's crying. Oh, I can't, Shogo's tired. 
To the point where Danny Moonstar last time, she's like, give me Shogo and go do something. And yet here we are, and she's like, oh yeah, the world's ending. Oh, our, our good friend Betsy is a, she might be a, a clone or a doppelganger, but uh, uh, Shogo has a diaper rash. I'm sorry, I can't go with you. And that leaves poor Gambit to head to uh, that weirdo Jamie Braddock's uh, castle there to chat him up. Where I mean, that's all well and good, right? I mean, Gambit and Jamie, I think that could be a fun conversation, but oh no. We got to be reminded that Morgan Le Fay's in the dungeon, <laughs> which means that this story's not going to end anytime soon. This is just so unfun. Um, I will say, Rogue as a leader here is refreshing. I, I like her as a leader. I feel like they're really, really pushing us to believe that she and Betsy are like the bestest friends that have ever friended in the in the world here, where I don't think they ever really were. But, hey, you know, maybe maybe it happened off-panel. It seems like a lot of the things in Teeny Howard's books happen off-panel, so I suppose it stands to reason that uh, their friendship uh, did as well. Um, as our friend Damien puts it here, this is a lovely-looking bit of nonsense <laughs> because the art is still fantastic. It's still Marcus Toe, and uh, that's great stuff. It's really, really pretty stuff. Um, but, yeah... Uh, <laughs> Not much more to say about this one. I'm just happy that it's uh, going to be like at least 10, 11, 12 episodes before we have to do another issue of Excalibur. But uh, agree, disagree, please feel free to let me know. Um, speaking of which, let's head into the mailbag here. We're going to talk first to Damien, who's going to chat us up about Wolverine number 8, which is, you know, number 350, the big double-sized issue here. Damien says, did I just read a pretty good issue of Wolverine? It can't be. This is meant to be the worst X book. I was considering getting a tattoo with the x lapsed catchphrase, except Wolverine. Uh, you really can't rely on anything these days. In fairness, they did try to make me feel at home with an interminable text page, but a surprise nonetheless. The first surprise was to see Victor Bogdanovic back. There was a bit of online controversy during X of Tens when Bogdanovic publicly stated that the Wolverine in Hell two-parter was badly written. I was convinced he would have been fired for that. Maybe they had to accept that he was right, and they can't fire people for honesty. And um, you'll have to fill me in on this statement here. I, I went through uh, some of Victor Bogdanovic's uh, social media, but... I guess fortunately and unfortunately, he's very, very active on social media, so it's a lot of scrolling to get back to exit tens here. But I did find a tweet from him from September 24th, 2020 at 6.26 a.m. In it, he says, You know how much sense X of Swords makes for someone who hasn't read any of the current X books? The answer is zero. Data pages, fancy charts, but God forbid we add a little introduction page for dummies like me who are jumping in cold and have no idea WTF's going on. I'm not sure if that's the quote, but the thread does go on with Victor lamenting the state of impenetrability within the X-Books here. Um, though I gotta say, if anybody out there would, would like to uh, you know, do the show a solid and let Mr. Bogdanovic know that, that this show is, exists and might actually help him get some stable footing in the post-Hoxpox world, yeah, I wouldn't be against that. Please, please do that. I, you know, I would do it myself, but I think that would be kind of tacky if I did it myself. Anyway, Damien continues. 
I would have probably been surprised by another double-sized issue if I hadn't already heard you go through the bestsellers. They will be looking for any reason they can to make money out of their second best-selling X-book. And yeah, how crazy is it that Wolverine is <laughs> is one of the bestsellers? It's, it's wild. Um, Damien continues. Like you, I was surprised to see Dolores presented as a sinister character. There's no way this can work with her Marauder's appearance. She not only met Storm, but she did it in a way that was facilitated by Emma Frost and the Stepford Cuckoos. There's no way she could have been she could have hidden sinister motivations from that many powerful telepaths. Great point. If she is the bad guy, maybe she has been replaced somehow. We seem to be getting hints that there are multiple versions of some characters. We know Sinister has clones and is giving Jamie a new Betsy. This issue implies two Omega Reds and possibly multiple versions of Maverick, Sabretooth, and Wolverine. We could be approaching a secret invasion type story. Oh, oh, we really shouldn't put that in the universe, should we? Oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine if that's where this is all headed? I suppose stranger things have happened. It wouldn't surprise me <laughs> at all. Um, Dolores here being very, uh, like, like you said, very sinister here. I... Part of me thinks that it's just lack of communication between the writers here, but uh, I really don't know. It just seems very, very bizarre. And, and you'll see when you get to uh, Wolverine number nine that she's still kind of iffy because she'll be at the, the Legacy House auction. Just uh, doesn't seem like that same uh, kindly character we saw on the subway with Storm who, you know, spilled the beans on Ominous Verandy. It's totally different here. And that's a great point you bring up that... That entire meeting, that was all worked through by Frost and the Cuckoos. So if uh, Dolores had any sort of underhanded motive or secondary motivation, it, that would have been sussed out for sure. Damien continues, The other possibility is that she's watching Wolverine's beer pal. I forget his name, it's Jeffrey Bannister, because he is secretly a bad guy. Alternatively, it's an error. Yeah, I think that's the one we're going to go with. I think it's an error. Um, this is like comics Occam Razor, right? If it's uh, <laughs> if it doesn't make sense, they probably just made a mistake here. This would be a what, Comicum's Razor, I guess we can call it if I really try to stress that. Uh, Damien continues, The idea of the Legacy House auction is really fun. It makes sense that superhero artifacts would have value, particularly in a world where DNA technology is accessible is as accessible as it is in the Marvel Universe. A pair of Dazzler's old disco ball earrings would give you the means to engineer the best soundproofing technology. And that is an excellent point, and uh, some pretty good soundproofing technology is something I'm actually very much in the market for right now. But uh, I, I won't bore you with the details of my real life here. Uh, Damien continues... I'm hoping we'll get to see loads of villains at the auction. I'll be very upset if they all put in telephone bids. Well, there will be uh, a few familiar faces there, so there will be a, a handful. Uh, Damien continues, The resurrection of the patch disguise is great fun. I wonder if they'll incorporate the idea from back in the 90s that everyone knows he's Wolverine but pretends not to notice because they don't want to antagonize the guy with the claws. Yeah, I think that's probably the way it goes. Uh, you'll find out when you read number nine here, and that's something that I totally missed here, because I was like, how come nobody knows it's him? <laughs> you know, totally disregarding the fact that, yeah, they probably all know it's him, but they're just, you know, not really pushing the buttons. Uh, Damien continues, I thought the change of colorist really lifted Adam Cubitt's work here. Uh, the overly rendered coloring he received earlier removed a lot of the life from his art. 
He suits the flatter, less saturated color here. And, you know, I didn't notice the difference in the coloring here. I should probably take a look here. I, I know that I've liked the art, uh, the, the Cubert art, all throughout here. I gotta, I gotta do a, a compare and contrast here to see uh, if, I, if the colors are lost on me or not. Uh, Damien continues, I'm actually looking forward to the next part of a Wolverine story. I don't think that's happened since Weapon X by Barry Windsor Smith. Wow, well that is high praise indeed, isn't it? Um, I'm trying to think if there was a time I was looking forward to a Wolverine story. Um, hmm. There was that, uh, that Chris Claremont one, I think it was Wolverine number 125, where they, we found out that he was married to Viper. I remember I was looking forward to that until I read it. Um, there's the, uh, Rob Liefeld Watchtower. No, no, no. Uh, huh. Are we counting Wolverine and the X-Men? Because I, I looked forward to a lot of those, but just a straightforward Wolverine story? I can't say that I, uh, can remember looking forward to any of those. Huh. Uh, you know, I think, I think Weapon X might, might be it for me as well. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Benjamin Percy admits he has a problem with text pages, make mine X-lapsed. Well, you know, admitting that you have a problem is, uh, you know, the first step in, uh, in recovering. So maybe one of these days he will. But uh, thank you so much for checking in on that issue of Wolverine and also for, uh, for dropping that information on Bogdanovic there. And again, if that's not the quote, please uh, feel free to send it my way and we can, uh, we can parse it here in future episodes. Uh, next up, we got Evan talking about X-Men number 16. He says, after reading X-Men number 16 and listening to the episode, I made a connection that others may have already found rather obvious. I found it both interesting and a little irritating how the Quiet Council structure mirrored Araco's governing body, as revealed during the Festival of the Ten Swords. It couldn't be a coincidence, but I, don't really, I didn't really see why. The timeline of Hox Pox was unclear, but it didn't seem to me like Apocalypse would have been involved in the setup of that government. Maybe he was, and that's the answer. The only other entity with experience with Araka would be Krakoa itself. So maybe the island, through Cypher, made some suggestions. But who said that Araka knowledge had to come from this life? Maybe Mora used knowledge from her life with Apocalypse to guide Xavier and Magneto in setting up this government. Maybe she even made them think it was their idea. I'm not sure how dramatic this revelation would be, but at least it links Araka further to the story rather than being this major revelation that felt, to me at first, like it came out of nowhere. Now, you know, the most interesting part of that is the fact that uh, I'm sure that we might get some sort of an answer from that issue that we were forced to read twice. You know, X-Men 12 and then 14. Uh, the You know, the creepy summoner telling a story and then Iska telling... The uh, not Iska uh, Genesis telling the real version of the story. I don't remember if they showed. I know they put together their uh, their council there, but uh, I don't think Apocalypse was included. It's it's scary how we read that twice, and I can remember like none of it. So if anybody else has that uh, information, you know, more at hand, please let us know. Evan continues. I enjoy a lot of the Quiet Council scenes. I agree with you that some aspects of the current status quo don't feel like an X-Men story, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I remember when someone criticized Dan Slott for making Peter Parker Marvel's new Tony Stark for a while, saying he wasn't really right for the role. Slott responded that it was part of the story. As you noted in Iska's exchange with Professor X and Magneto, a lot of these characters are are in a new role and perhaps they're ill-prepared for it. 
If this is part of the story, as opposed to trying to jam X-shaped pegs into round holes, it can work. And more often than not, these poor fits, even the aspects I don't like, seem to be a conscious story decision. Oh, I have uh, no doubt that uh, Xavier and Magneto's, uh, for lack of a better term, naivete as it pertains to creating and, and managing a government are on purpose. I think that's definitely going to be part of the story moving forward here. Because, uh, I mean, it was so clear. And uh, Iska herself kind of was, you know, I mean, she was pointing it out right there. It's like, you guys are, you know, you guys are bringing silly putty to a gunfight. You know, you guys are not equipped to uh, to run a government. She called it like a, a kid's government. Whereas Araco has had their, you know, great ring for millennia, I believe. It's been a very, very long time here. So back to your first point here about whether or not this could be uh, from a past life that Mora experienced and remembered. I think that's that could be quite likely because, I mean, Arako has had governments. Krakoa was just that island that ate mutants. You know, it didn't have a governing body. It wasn't a world power for all these years until right now. So maybe Mora in... I don't remember if that was her sixth life. No, the sixth life was the far-flung future one. Whichever one was with Apocalypse. Um, I wonder if she has taken the knowledge from that life to uh, to kind of make Krakoa on par with Arako or, or doing it, it do, making the government in Arako's image because it's worked for millennia in, uh, for Arako. So definitely a lot of food for thought there. Hopefully these are things we'll learn more about. Um I'm not convinced that we will anytime soon since we're, you know, going to be going into another crossover pretty quick. But uh, fingers crossed we will eventually get some of these answers here. But thank you so much for writing in to talk about this issue. I hope this means that uh, Marvel Unlimited is being a little bit more um, kind with their X-Men releases here, a little bit more giving. But that's going to do it for the mailbag for today. If uh, anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag, please feel free to chat me up, write me. Uh, you could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook and talk about whatever you'd like at 90s X-Men. That's our little group on Facebook. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation applications and whatevers. Anyway, that will do it for today. Um, I guess this is the point where I apologize for being so negative about the book we covered today. So yeah, that. And I would definitely like to thank everyone so, so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.